Section twenty two of A Lear of the Steps, etc., by Ivan Turgenev. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Asya, Part Seven. I slept badly, and next morning got up early, fastened a knapsack on my back, and telling my landlady not to expect me back for the night, set off walking to the mountains, along the upper part of the stream on which Z is situated. These mountains, offsets of the ridge known as the Hunsrück, are very interesting from a geological point of view. They are especially remarkable for the purity and regularity of the strata of basalt but I was in no mood for geological observations. I did not take stock of what was passing within me. One feeling was clear to me, a disinclination to see the Gagans. I assured myself that the sole reason of my sudden distaste for their society was anger at their duplicity. Who forced them to pass themselves off as brother and sister? However, I tried not to think about them. I sauntered in leisurely fashion about the mountains and valleys, sat in the village inns, talking peacefully to the innkeepers and people drinking in them, or lay on a flat stone warmed by the sun, and watched the clouds floating by. Luckily it was exquisite weather. In such pursuits I passed three days, and not without pleasure, though my heart did ache at times. My own mood was in perfect harmony with the peaceful nature of that quiet countryside. I gave myself up entirely to the play of circumstances, of fleeting impressions. In slow succession they flowed through my soul, and left on it at last one general sensation, in which all I had seen, felt and heard in those three days, was mingled, all. The delicate fragrance of resin in the forest, the call and tap of the woodpeckers, the never-ceasing chatter of the clear brooks, with spotted trout lying in the sand at the bottom, the somewhat softened outlines of the mountains, the surly rocks, the little clean villages with respectable old churches and trees, the storks in the meadows, the neat mills with swiftly turning wheels, the beaming faces of the villagers, their blue smocks and grey stockings, the creaking, deliberately moving wagons drawn by sleek horses and sometimes cows, the long-haired young men wandering on the clean roads planted with apple and pear trees. Even now I like to recall my impressions of those days. Good luck go with thee, modest nook of Germany, with thy simple plenty, with traces everywhere of busy hands, of patient though leisurely toil. Good luck, and peace to thee. I came home at the end of the third day. I forgot to say that in my anger with the Gagans I tried to revive the image of my cruel-hearted widow, but my efforts were fruitless. I remember when I applied myself to musing upon her, I saw a little peasant girl of five years old, with a round little face and innocently staring eyes. She gazed with such childish directness at me. I felt ashamed before her innocent stare, I could not lie in her presence, and at once, and once for all, said a last good-bye to my former flame. At home I found a note from Gagin. He wondered at the suddenness of my plan, reproached me, asked why I had not taken him with me, and pressed me to go and see him directly I was back. I read this note with dissatisfaction, but the next day I set off to the Gagins. Part Eight. Gagin met me in friendly fashion and overwhelmed me with affectionate reproaches. But Asya, as though intentionally, 
burst out laughing for no reason whatever directly she saw me and promptly ran away as she so often did gagin was disconcerted he muttered after her that she must be crazy and begged me to excuse her i confess i was very much annoyed with asya already apart from that i was not at my ease and now again this unnatural laughter these strange grimaces i pretended however not to notice anything and began telling gagin some of the incidents of my short tour he told me what he had been doing in my absence but our talk did not flow easily asya came into the room and ran out again i declared at last that i had urgent work to do and must get back home Gagin at first tried to keep me, then, looking intently at me, offered to see me on my way. In the passage Asya suddenly came up to me and held out her hand. I shook her fingers very slightly and barely bowed to her. Gagin and I crossed the Rhine together, and when we reached my favourite ash-tree with the statuette of the Madonna, we sat down on the bench to admire the view. A remarkable conversation took place between us at first we exchanged a few words then we were silent watching the clear river tell me began gagin all at once with his habitual smile what do you think of asya i suppose she must strike you as rather strange doesn't she yes i answered in some perplexity i had not expected he would begin to speak of her one has to know her well to judge her he observed she has a very good heart but she's wilful she's difficult to get on with but you couldn't blame her if you knew her story her story i broke in why isn't she your gagin glanced at me do you really think she isn't my sister no he went on paying no attention to my confusion she really is my sister she's my father's daughter let me tell you about her i feel i can trust you and i'll tell you all about it my father was very kind, clever, cultivated, and unhappy. Fate treated him no worse than others, but he could not get over her first blow. He married early, for love. His wife, my mother, died very soon after. I was only six months old then. My father took me away with him to his country place, and for twelve years he never went out anywhere. He looked after my education himself, and would never have parted with me, if his brother, my uncle, had not come to see us in the country. This uncle always lived in Petersburg, where he held a very important post. He persuaded my father to put me in his charge, as my father would not on any consideration agree to leave the country. My uncle represented to him that it was bad for a boy of my age to live in complete solitude, that with such a constantly depressed and taciturn instructor as my father, I should infallibly be much behind other boys of my age in education, and that my character might even possibly suffer. My father resisted his brother's counsels a long while, but he gave way at last. I cried at parting from my father. I loved him, though I had never seen a smile on his face. But when I got to Petersburg, I soon forgot our dark and cheerless home. I entered a cadet school, and from school passed on into a regiment of the guards every year i used to go home to the country for a few weeks and every year i found my father more and more low-spirited absorbed in himself depressed and even timorous 
He used to go to church every day, and had quite got out of the way of talking. On one of my visits, I was about twenty then, I saw for the first time in our house a thin, dark-eyed little girl of ten years old, Asya. My father told me she was an orphan whom he had kept out of charity. That was his very expression. I paid no particular attention to her. She was shy, quick in her movements, and silent as a little wild animal, and directly I went into my father's favourite room, an immense gloomy apartment, where my mother had died, and where candles were kept burning even in the daytime, she would hide at once behind his big armchair or behind the bookcase. It so happened that for three or four years after that visit the duties of the service prevented my going home to the country. I used to get a short letter from my father every month. Asya he rarely mentioned, and only incidentally. He was over fifty, but he seemed still young. Imagine my horror all of a sudden, suspecting nothing, I received a letter from the steward in which he informed me my father was dangerously ill, and begged me to come as soon as possible if I wanted to take leave of him. I galloped off post-haste, and found my father still alive, but almost at his last gasp. He was greatly relieved to see me, clasped me in his wasted arms, and gazed at me with a long, half-scrutinizing, half-imploring look, and making me promise I would carry out his last request, he told his old valet to bring Asya. The old man brought her in. She could scarcely stand upright, and was shaking all over. Here, said my father, with an effort, I confide to you my daughter, your sister. You will hear all about her from Yakov, he added, pointing to the valet. Asya sobbed, and fell with her face on the bed. Half an hour later my father died. This was what I learned. Asya was the daughter of my father by a former maid-servant of my mother's, Tatyana. I have a vivid recollection of this Tatyana. I remember her tall, slender figure, her handsome, stern, clever face, with big dark eyes. She had the character of being a proud, unapproachable girl. As far as I could find out from Yakov's respectful, unfinished sentences, my father had become attached to her some years after my mother's death. Tatyana was not living then in my father's house, but in the hut of a married sister, who had charge of the cows. My father became exceedingly fond of her, and after my departure from the country he even wanted to marry her, but she herself would not consent to be his wife, in spite of his entreaties. The deceased Tatyana Vasilyevna, Yakov informed me, standing in the doorway with his hands behind him, had good sense in everything, and she didn't want to do harm to your father. A poor wife I should be for you, a poor sort of lady I should make, she so was pleased to say. She said so before me. Tatyana would not even move into the house, and went on living at her sister's with Asya. In my childhood I used to see Tatyana only on saints' days in church. With her head tied up in a dark kerchief, and a yellow shawl on her shoulders, she used to stand in the crowd near a window, her stern profile used to stand out sharply against a transparent window-pane, and she used to pray sedately and gravely, bowing low to the ground in the old-fashioned way. When my uncle carried me off, Asya was only two years old, and she lost her mother when she was nine. 
Directly Tatyana died, my father took Asya into the house. He had before then expressed a wish to have her with him, but that too Tatyana had refused him. Imagine what must have passed in Asya's mind when she was taken into the master's house. To this day she cannot forget the moment when they first put her in a silk dress and kissed her hand. Her mother, as long as she lived, had brought her up very strictly. With my father she enjoyed absolute freedom. He was her tutor, she saw no one except him. He did not spoil her, that is to say, he didn't fondle and pet her, but he loved her passionately, and never checked her in anything. In his heart he considered he had wronged her. Asya soon realized that she was the chief personage in the house. She knew the master was her father, but just as quickly she was aware of her false position. Self-consciousness was strongly developed in her, mistrustfulness too. Bad habits took root, simplicity was lost. She wanted, she confessed this to me once herself, to force the whole world to forget her origin. She was ashamed of her mother, and at the same time ashamed of being ashamed, and was proud of her too. You see she knew and knows a lot that she oughtn't to have known at her age. But was it her fault? The forces of youth were at work in her, her heart was in a ferment, and not a guiding hand near her. Absolute independence in everything. And wasn't it hard for her to put up with? She wanted to be as good as other young ladies. She flew to books. But what good could she get from that? Her life went on as irregularly as it had begun, but her heart was not spoiled, her intellect was uninjured. And there was I, a boy of twenty, with a girl of thirteen on my hands. For the first few days after my father's death, the very sound of my voice threw her into a fever. My caresses caused her anguish, and it was only slowly and gradually that she got used to me. It is true that later, when she fully realized that I really did acknowledge her as my sister, and cared for her, she became passionately attached to me. She can feel nothing by halves. I took her to Petersburg. Painful as it was to part with her, we could not live together. I sent her to one of the best boarding-schools. Asya knew our separation was inevitable, yet she began by fretting herself ill over it, and almost died. Later on she plucked up more spirit, and spent four years at school. But contrary to my expectations, she was almost exactly the same as before. The headmistress of the school often made complaints of her. "'And we can't punish her,' she used to say to me, "'and she's not amenable to kindness.' Asya was exceedingly quick-witted, and did better at her lessons than anyone. But she never would put herself on a level with the rest. She was perverse, and held herself aloof. I could not blame her very much for it. In her position she had either to be subservient, or to hold herself aloof. Of all the schoolfellows she only made friends with one, an ugly girl of poor family, who was spat upon by the rest. The other girls with whom she was brought up, mostly of good family, did not like her, teased her and taunted her as far as they could. Asya would not give way to them an inch. One day at their lesson on the law of God the teacher was talking of the vices. "'Servility and cowardice are the worst vices,' Asya said aloud. She would still go her own way, in fact. Only her manners were improved. 
though even in that respect I think she did not gain a great deal. At last she reached her seventeenth year. I could not keep her any longer at school. I found myself in a rather serious difficulty. Suddenly a blessed idea came to me, to resign my commission and go abroad for a year or two, taking Asia with me. No sooner thought than done, and here we are on the banks of the Rhine, where I am trying to take up painting, and she is as naughty and troublesome as ever. But now I hope you will not judge her too harshly, for though she pretends she doesn't care, she values the good opinion of every one, and yours particularly." And Gagin smiled again his gentle smile. I pressed his hand warmly. "'That's how it is,' Gagin began again. "'But I have a trying time with her. She's like gunpowder, always ready to go off. So far she has never taken a fancy to anyone, but woe betide us if she falls in love. I sometimes don't know what to do with her. The other day she took some notion into her head, and suddenly began declaring I was colder to her than I used to be, that she loved me and no one else, and never would love anyone else, and she cried so as she said it. So that was it, I was beginning, but I bit my tongue. Tell me, I questioned Gagin, we have talked so frankly about everything, is it possible, really, she has never cared for any one yet? Didn't she see any young men in Petersburg? She didn't like them at all. No, Asia wants a hero, an exceptional individual, or a picturesque shepherd on a mountain pass. But I've been chattering away, and keeping you, he added, getting up. Do you know, I began, let's go back to your place, I don't want to go home. What about your work? I made no reply. Gagin smiled good-humouredly, and we went back to L. As I caught sight of the familiar vineyard and little white house, I felt a certain sweetness, yes, sweetness in my heart, as though honey was stealthily dropping thence for me. My heart was light after what Gagin had told me. End of section 22